the next 2-2. Two, two. Davis to left and will hit! Oh my! It's gone! From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex, and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. I never move in slow-mo, welcome to my dojo, those other parts are so-so, I'm chill like bro-yo, focus like a GoPro, ripping up this promo, check out the school board, preach up though no one knows, it's going, it's going, it's going, no it's gone, your heart just stop, cause Jake got strong and mighty, undefeated, I mean it, pull up the pod, scroll it down and read it, written, produced, directed, and mixed, dumb on your lips and Ozzy Smith backflips, pick a tip, any tip, get onto it, I got ridiculous pods without forcing it, you sit at home, Crying like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world. Yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed in smooth with the groove to make ears want to listen. Add a little cut and some rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up. You think another white rap bag, but this ain't no ad jack. My hobby's to rhyme, some people try to be bad for that. About time I come out, call the show BKP and let me turn it out. Yo, name Jake the Snake, Porter 71. Dates, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns. Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory. And that's why I collect ball players and their stories. Y'all heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island Sound, kind of like a hat man, hat podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's up, Seamheads? What's juicy? Welcome back into my dojo, man, for another super scintillating edition of Backwards K-Pod, where every week I like to make these deep historical and biographical digs into the amazing stories of baseball that have been woven into the fabric of who we are as Americans as the traditions of the game go all the way back to George Washington and his aide-de-camp playing rounders out at Valley Forge before he led troops across the Delaware River to kick a little British ass on that Christmas night in 1776. This game... This great country of ours, we are forever more late by time and historical perspective. As the game has evolved, so has the country. Hello, everybody. I'm Jake Robinson. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Man, it's been a wild and crazy last week of the 2023 season. Both wild card races were... And it's called very convoluted down the stretch, but by game 161, we had our field of postseason teams in the American League. The Orioles hold the number one seed, winning the AL East pennant with a 101 and 61 record. The Strohs are going to the playoffs for the seventh year in a row, winning the West, and Minnesota snatches the Central with uh, Tampa, the Rangers, and the Blue Jays winning wild card bursts. In the NL, you got the Braves. They, you know, they ran away with the NLE's crown and are they're pretty much the proverbial uh, favorites to win it all. The Dodgers 
The Dodgers, they took the NL West, and the Brewers won the Central with Filthy, Arizona, and the Fish sitting in the wildcard spots. The games, uh, they're going to begin on Tuesday, October 3rd, with a pair of AL matchups with the Rangers at Tampa and Toronto at the Twins as the 3 o'clock and 4.30 Eastern Standard Time games. Later that evening, you're going to have the National League side kick it off with the Snakes Brew Crew at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and the Fish at Philly at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. So, by the next show, we will have the Wild Card Series settled and we will dig into the Division Series and the LCS all the way to the World Series and its conclusion. I was going to go in on the meat and bones this week, but uh, we got a big topic. And we also had some horrible news this week in the baseball universe. And I would truly be remiss if I were not to make mention. And since we last spoke, or since I last spoke, I should say, to this beautiful CMED audience... The game and the fans are in grief as we lost two of the real good guys in baseball. First and foremost, last week after dropping that Mike Schmidt bio, the baseball world was rocked by the announcement that Hall of Fame Orioles third baseman Brooks Robinson had passed at 86 years old and most of you know I'm a I'm as diehard Oriole fan as they come. Brooks was truly my hero. And although I only got to see him play late in his career, his legend was passed down to me. And I was taught at a very young age that if you see Johnny Unitas or Brooks Robinson running around town, they're to be treated like international royalty. And... Thankfully, I did Brooks' story two months back. I also had a chance to interview him back in 1998. If you haven't heard that bio, I highly recommend you dig into my catalog of over 100 shows and check it out. I'm available on all podcast platforms. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. I mean, you know, look, Google Chromecast, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Podbean, Stitcher. Even Alexa will get face down and ass up. If you ask her for a backwards K-pod. But if you are app or technologically inept, eh, just go on over to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com and scroll down till you find it. I highly recommend the Brooks Robinson Show. The Orioles are coming off their winningest season in 50 years, going into the post. And the rally cry now is hashtag for Brooks. And before I came on, I found a great clip of Billy Bob Thornton talking about his childhood hero, Brooks Robinson. Check this out, freaks. One year, a girlfriend of mine said, if you could have anything for Christmas this year, what would it be? Mm-hmm. And I said, an autographed baseball glove from Brooks Robinson. Because Brooks was from Arkansas. He grew up in Little Rock, North Little Rock. And uh, I just loved him, you know, when he played with the Orioles. And... Uh, so I thought that's never going to happen. <laughs> but if I could have anything, that's what it would be. And she chased him down. She got all the publicists and everybody else on the case. And Christmas morning, I opened it up, and there was an autographed book, uh, Brooks Robinson glove, and it said, uh, uh, and of course, you know, the glove from him—that's the thing because sure. it was fielding, you know. And 
it said from a huge fan, Brooks Robinson. I'm like, Brooks Robinson knows who I am. I'm done. This this is this is all fine. Did you ever put on the Brooks Robinson glove? Like literally, put your hand in. Oh, it? I, I put it on, but boy, do I protect it. It's a, I, I finally put it in plexiglass because it's you know the name might rub off. You know, one year a. Gr- I mean, that's just hilarious. What a great story. Love it. Again, go check out that Robinson bio uh, on my archives there. And, 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 you know, that wasn't enough. We learned on Sunday that 57-year-old former knuckleball specialist Tim Wakefield died. And no cause of death has been provided yet. But we do know from former Red Sox teammate Kurt Schilling on his podcast show he uh, announced that the former pitcher was battling a brain tr- tumor and that the family was requesting privacy. By all accounts from his teammates, coaches, family, and fans, Wake embodied true goodness as a devoted father and a husband, a loyal, classy, caring teammate, beloved broadcaster, and the ultimate community leader who gave all he could to the game of baseball. He was drafted out of high school as a first baseman by the Pittsburgh Pirates, but when his career looked like it was circling the drain there because of his inability to hit pro pitching, he turned to a rarely thrown pitch to get to the show. And armed with this elusive knuckleball pitch, Wakefield played two seasons for Pittsburgh and then 17 for the Boston Red Sox. He's finished with a 200 wins, 180 uh, win-loss record, and a 105 ERA+. After giving up the ALCS clinching blast to Aaron Boone in 2003, he rebounded in 2004 and helped erase a 96-year-old curse for Red Sox Nation by winning the World Series title. He was also a driving force on the 2007 World Champion Red Sox team as well. His 196 victories in a Red Sox uniform ranks him third behind only Cy Young and Roger Clemens. His 3,006 innings pitched, 430 starts, they're both club records. And he was certainly, without question, one of the most unique pitchers of his generation of roided out sluggers. He is survived by his wife Stacy and their two children, Trevor and Brianna. And it's just horrible. You would be sorely missed, Wake. Rest in peace. Godspeed. And time will not dim the glory of your deeds. And I hate to start a show on such a downer, but such is life. These things happen, and I just want to make sure that BKP pays the ultimate respect to these two fallen baseball warriors. Okay? So... Let's get on to this week's topic. I'm not sure how to creatively segue from that to this. So, like a true Aries, I'm just going to back up, lower my head, and crash right through all the barriers if it's okay with y'all. As this week, I am most excited to talk about one of my favorite baseball players as a kid. I'm talking Rod Carrill. I see the catcher throwing that ball down a second. The umpire has called play ball, and now they've built a stone that seat around. If I could get all of you C-Meds to kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye here at Terrapin Station so I can load up our time travel, Choo I'm calling all aboard. As I set our time and destination for October 1st, 1945, Gutan, Panama, where a future Hall of Famer, 
one of the greatest sticks ever in the game is about to be born in the most peculiar manner. And I tell you what, I got a clip here from Rod Carew on ABC World News Tonight back in 1977. And it's a soundbite of Carew and his then skipper Gene Mock. So, as you load up here on the time travel choo-choo, get yourself comfortable. Open your Komodos. We don't judge. And give this a listen. Real quick. Check this out. I'm really trying to uh, do things that I'm not capable of doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I know my capabilities and how far I can go and what I can do with a bat. I've disciplined myself over the years to know that uh, I'm not a home run hitter, so I'm not going to swing for the fences. I try to use the whole field because I think I can get more hits this, this way instead of just trying to be a full hit and hit the ball one place. Everybody knows that uh, Ted Williams had the greatest pair of eyes that uh, had ever been tested in the Naval Cadet uh, Program. And Rod Carew has eyes of that caliber. I've been told by doctors that people that are under great stress don't have uh, the benefit of their uh, best eyesight. And both of these players, Ted Williams and Rod Carew, are so extremely relaxed and so confident because of the knowledge of the fact that they are great hitters that they operate daily at their best level of efficiency as far as their eyesight is concerned. I, I believe in that. Hitting 400 is, is it's a great feat, you know, because uh, guys are going to hit home runs every day. But when you get 240, 250 hits throughout a season, I think it's an amazing feat to, to accomplish. You've already hit 400 through the first half of the season. That's kind of amazing in itself. Do you think you can do it in the second half? I'm not going to just come right out and say, yes, you know, it's going to happen. You know, but it's very likely it might happen if, if things go my way, the, the way they've been going, you know, the first half of the season. Carew's chase for the 400 mark has helped the Twins draw over 150,000 more paying customers than they had at this time last year. And if his public has been appreciative of his batsmanship before, his performances lately have inspired ovations at the mere mention of his name. It's been unbelievable. I, I, I can't, uh, I don't know how to express it, you know. I've, I've had a few ovations uh, in the past, but it seems that every time I walk up to the plate or if I get a hit, you know, it's, it's going to happen. And uh, I don't know what to say. You know, I, I appreciate it. My- and during the 1977 season, that very same one where that interview is from, Yankees Hall of Fame pitcher Catfish Hunter was asked how tough it was to face this week's topic. And he mused that there are no weaknesses in Ron Carew as a hitter. Pitch him inside, high, low, fast up, breaking balls. Shit, throw the kitchen sink at him. There isn't anything he can't handle. There are no holes in that swing. And he ain't lying, folks. In fact, I think it's safe to say that those words by old Catfish in 1977 was an opinion that was shared by uh, many American League hurlers throughout Carew's illustrious career. But that 77 campaign was the very same season that saw him maintain an average over 400 for a stretch from June 29th to July 10th. The left-handed swing at Minnesota Twin was an absolute terror. He ended the season with a 388 BA, 
His hand-eye abilities gripped the baseball universe, and he appeared on the covers of Sports Illustrated and Time magazine during the week of July. He was the face of baseball in 1977. As August drew to a close, the Twins found themselves as players in the AL West pennant race, trailing the Royals by a mere three games. But September was not kind of Minnesota as they go 7-18 during that month, effectively dashing their post-series aspirations. Our protagonist this week was able to keep perspective about him chasing 400 that summer as well as the unfortunate collapse of his team when he opined at the end of the year that even though he was the center of the media storm with his average above 400 in July, deep down, knowing how truly tough it is to hit 400 plus over the course of a season, he knew it would be very tough to to stay there. But one thing he does say is that he didn't change anything. He was still hitting the ball in the second half. It wasn't like he had holes in his swing and he was being exploited. No, he was hitting the ball. And in fact, he said, you know, a lot of those balls that were base hits the first half of the season were now being caught. It was great defensive plays against him. And he really didn't change anything in his course, uh, you know, hitting 400 that year. And... As the summer began to heat up, he, he, he knew deep down his arms would grow weary. They would lag through the strike zone. Or, God forbid, if he had an injury or of any sort, which would require adjusting or a different approach. So, hitting 400 was never the goal. Winning ball games is always Rod's first objective. When you win, the clubhouse is a loud, exciting place to be. And when you lose, all you hear is mumbling and grumbling. So, here we are, C-Meds, bending baseball space and time, coming out of that wormhole here. October 1st, 1945, Guton, Panama. And if you freaks will look out the windows along the right side of the train, you're going to see a train running perpendicular to us, right? I mean, look out there. And... So, check it out, folks. October 1st, 1945, on that train that you're looking at this very moment, Rodney Klein Carew is being born into the world. His parents, Eric and Olga Carew, were feverishly trying to get from their home in Gutan, Panama, to gorgeous George's Hospital in Ancone. And... I never knew this till coming out of that wormhole and having the data uploaded into my dashboard here. But Panama in 1945 is a segregated country, which just blows me away. But his parents are seated in the rear coach there as it is reserved for a color folk here in Panama. And I'm so tempted to run down that rabbit hole and find out the history of segregation in Panama, but I got a schedule to keep here. It's a 40-mile trip from their home to the hospital, and after about an hour and a half, Olga was feeling uneasy and begins to go into labor. Luckily, there is a nurse on board in the segregated coach because 
the conduct, conductor of the train, he's pretty much oblivious to everything that's going on in that segregated coach right now. The Carews are in good hands, though, as the nurse, Margaret Allen, springs into action to help deliver this future master batsman into the world. And I'll just send word to the conductor, and he has a Dr. Rodney Klein aboard, who has joined Nurse Margaret Allen to assist in the delivery as Ms. Carew is ready to go. And there's no stopping this boy or putting it off. This is about to go down. And with one last painful push, the future legend is born. He's got all his toes and his fingers. He'll survive. The conductor is going to take the parents, the child, the doctor, the nurse, and all the mortified passengers straight to the hospital. Olga Carew, who is so grateful for a healthy new son in a situation that could have gone sideways. She's extremely thankful to the doctor. So much so, so that she names the youngster after her hero doctor, Rodney Klein Carew. That's right, Seamans. Rod Carew is named after the doctor who delivered him on a segregated train. And Nurse Margaret Allen was asked to be his godmother, and she accepted. Rod had four siblings, three sisters, one brother, and the family unit has always called him Klein. His father, Eric, was a sign painter along the Panama Canal, but his father is an abusive drunk. Comes home inebriated. He gets physical with the sons, Rod and Dickie. Rod and Dickie. Ah, wah, 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 wah. Rod's relationship with his father was strained. Honestly, the, the children lived in fear of their father. It was his mother who was loving, caring, nurturing for the kids. Rod was also very close to his mother's brother, his uncle, Joe French, who was a gym teacher at his grade school. And it was Uncle Joe who recognized Rod's early in-life athletic ability and got him started in Little League Baseball. And Rod, he grows to love baseball coming up. By the time he was a student at Parazio High School, he was not only a fine athlete, but an exceptional student. While Rod is excelling at high school, both scholastically and athletically, Olga is trying to leave Panama for a better life for her and the kids. But more than anything, her maternal instincts keep telling her to get the children away from her husband, Eric. Her target destination is New York City. And with some assistance from Margaret Allen and her older brother Clyde, she escapes Eric's clutches and goes to New York alone. After she gets all settled in at the Big Apple, she sends for her son, well, her sons, and they join her in 1962. So, Rod and his older brother Dickie, they get to New York, the trio settles down to Washington Heights, the Carew boys attend George Washington High School, the same high school alma mater as President Nick Nixon's former Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, and former slugger Manny Ramirez. Rod got a job as a stock clerk in a neighborhood supermarket, and he did not play baseball in high school once he came to America. His days were the same old Groundhog Day routine, go to school, go to work, go to bed, repeat. Day in and day out, as English was spotty, 
And Rod's only goal while in America those first few years was mastering the English language and keeping up with the studies. As Carew's language improves, and boy, did it ever improve. You ever hear that guy talk? You would have no idea that he didn't know English until he was 18 years old. But as his language improves, he, he begins to get comfortable in his own skin. And he starts hanging around the neighborhood saying a lot of baseball fields. In 1964, he joined the New York Cavaliers, a Sandlot team that was a member of the Bronx Federation League. So, Carew does what I can only imagine Carew has always done. He starts smoking line drives, and I do mean line drives, all of them on a rope. He's blasting hits everywhere, and his teammate Steve's father, Monroe Katz, is a bird dog scout for the Minnesota Twins. And Monroe is looking for a way to get into the Twins' full-time scouting loop. He needs to deliver that one special player to the organization to get recognized. And he watches Carew just dominate these poor Sandlot hurlers. And he jumps in his car. Dodges traffic on the way to the pass. Uh, the word about this Carew kid to Herb Stein, who was the New York area scout for the Twinkies. Eventually, the two saw him together in the next game, and Stein couldn't believe his eyes. Monroe had found a true gem, laying waste to some poor slub on the bump. The two scouts marveled at Ron's lightning-fast wrist that exploded at the point of contact. For a left-handed batter, they were amazed by his ability to collapse his hands and wrist fast enough to smash that inside uh, pitch to left field, like clockwork. Bang, bang, bang. And the next thing you know, Carew begins to gain a rep. And he starts gracing the Sandlot fields all over New York City. He begins playing with and against the Spanish players in Central Park. And there were a plethora of fine ballers in the park on any given night. But... It was Rod Star that usually shined brightest in a universe filled with constellations of beautiful stars. Stein eventually approaches Kirill, and when the pandemonium recognizes his face in the stands at all the games throughout New York, he becomes very, uh, well, curious. And he brokers a tryout for Kirill with the Twins when they came into town to play the Yankees. Again, as usual, Carew does what I can only assume he has always ever done. He hits line drives all over the yard. Twins manager Sam Maley can't believe what he is seeing. He looks at Rod, hit another smash, and he turns and looks at Stein and Katz, who are just as dumbfounded. Like, right? Maley saw enough, told Carew... Uh, to stay in contact with Stein, and we'll be talking to you when you graduate high school. And after Rod graduated in June of 1964, the twins were true to their word. They negotiated a deal to pay Rod $400 a month with a $5,000 signing bonus, and then he sent them to his first pro team in Cocoa, Florida, and rookie A-ball. $5,000 signing bonus, that's worth about $50,000 today in the 2023 economy. And $400 a month, well, we're looking at almost $4,000 in purchasing power today. 
after Carew finished his season in Rookie League. He joins the U.S. Marine Reserves. And although he wasn't a citizen, he was a permanent resident, and he was eager to serve his new country. In fact, he would serve reserve duty for the next five and a half years as he played ball. Rod spent two years in the Twins farm system. In 1965, he is assigned to Class A Orlando of the Florida State League where he bats 303 and swipes 52 bags. He moves on to Class A Wilson, North Carolina of the Carolina League. Both of those seasons, he played second base. And by the time Rod makes the big club in 1967, the Minnesota Twins were a strong baseball team. Their ace pitcher, Dean Chance, was coming off a strong 20-win season, 1966 that was, and he was the anchor of a rotation that consisted of Jim Cott, Jim Merritt, and Dave Boswell. Slugger Harmon Killerill led the American League in home runs. Tony Oliva led the league in doubles. Bobby Allison was a fantastic hitter, and Carew only added to the riches. Rod makes his major league debut on April 11, 1967 against the Orioles at Memorial Stadium. In his first at bat against O's pitcher Dave McNally, he smacks a single, and he goes 2-4 for four on that day. His rookie year, he bats 292, starts at second base in the All-Star game, and would be his first of 18 Midsummer Classics. And he was named American League Rookie of the Year by the Sporting News Magazine, as well as the BBWA. Unfortunately, the Twins got off to a slow start in 67. And manager Sam Maley was let go after 50 games with the team record at 25 and 25. He was replaced by Cal Ermer. And the Twins caught fire, going 66-46 and 46 under his stewardship. On September 1st, they hold a one-game lead in the American League with three games left on the schedule. Unfortunately, they dropped the last three games of the season, including the last two in Fenway Park to the Sox, opening the door for Boston to take the 1967 AL pennant. In retrospect, that 1967 season saw the last true tight league pennant race. The 1968 Tigers, whom we covered a couple weeks ago in the Mickey Lowlands bio, they breezed through the AL in 1969. Both leagues expanded by two more teams, breezing through the AL. In 1969, both leagues uh, expanded by two more teams, and each league went into a two-division format. AL and NL East and West and this created a round of championship series before the World Series and no longer was the team with the best regular season record guaranteed a World Series spot. With this new format, the Twins won the AL West title in 1969 and 1970. Both years they held off Oakland by nine games and in both seasons they were swept by the Baltimore Orioles and the newfangled ALCS. In 1969, the Twins were being managed by Hall of Famer Billy Martin, who had served on the staffs of Millie and Irmer. And Carew loved Billy, and his aggressive, on-the-base pass philosophy, and the two would form a friendship based on love and respect that would last until that fateful automobile accident on Christmas Day of 1989. 
that would essentially and ostensibly rob the baseball universe of one of the greatest managers in the game's history. Carew stole home seven times in 1969. And listen to this, folks. Five of those seven stolen bases of home plate were in the very first inning. The seven steals was one shy of the record set by Tyrus Raymond Cobb in 1912, 111 years ago today. With this 332 BA standing atop of all AL hitters, 1969 would become the first of seven seasons in which he would lead the American League in hitting. On May 20th, 1970, at Kansas City, Rod became the first player in Twins history to hit for the cycle. On June 23rd, 22nd, Carew is batting 374 when he suffers a severe leg injury in the fourth inning of a ball game versus the Brewers at County Stadium. Mike Heegan upended Carew in an attempted uh, to break up a double play, and his left leg, it just snapped like a kindling pencil, and he was forced to have surgery to repair the torn ligaments and remove some cartilage. He would return in September in a pinch hitter role. In his personal life, Rod found himself courting Marilyn Levy for two years. And on October 24th, 1970, the two were married in a private ceremony. The interracial couple had many challenges in the early 70s, including death threats that Rod would more or less blow up. The two would have three daughters, Sharice, Stephanie, and Michelle. 1969 was the first of 15 straight years that saw Carew hit 300 or better. He led the league six more years as a member of the Twins from 1972 to 1975 and 1977 and 1978. Only Tyrus Raymond Cobb, Hannes Wagner, and Tony Gwynn have led the league more times in average. In 1976, Gene Mock takes the managerial helm after owner Clark Griffith rebuffed Billy Martin's new contract demands. Mock moves Carew to first base to ostensibly extend his career with a position that wasn't as taxing on his body. Minnesota ended the year at Kansas City in a game that saw Rod, George Brett, and Hal McRae all vying for the batting title. McRae and Carew both turned in two for four performances. But it was Brett going 3 for 4 with the decisive hit being the controversial in the park home run that Twins outfielder Steve Bry badly misplayed. And we covered that story extensively in the George Brett bio as well as the Kaufman Stadium pod. Brett would finish 333, McCray at 332, and Rod Carew at 331. In spite of personal success, they found themselves... As a middle-of-the-pack kind of team playing in the ALS. And the losing began to take its toll on Rod, even though his numbers remained stellar. Carew had signed a three-year deal with the club in 1977. But in the meanwhile, the advent of free agency began to take hold in baseball. And Carew quietly sits by and watches talented teammates Larry Heisel and Lyman Bostock, Bostock sign lucrative contracts with teams on the rise like Milwaukee and the California Angels, respectively. 
Carew never won the rock the boat, decides to honor his three-year pact with the club, but his relationship with owner Clark Griffith is deteriorating and being played out in the press, and it's only a matter of time before Rodney is set to take his future career into his own hands and test the free agent market. Now, the Twins organization, to their credit, they saw the writing on the wall, realizing Carrillo is not going to re-up with the club. They began shopping this amazing stick to other teams with Carew holding the power to approve or nix any deal presented to him. The team with the deepest pockets comes on knocking, and in the end, it was the California Angels who put together a package the Twins could live with. On February 3rd, 1979, Carew was dealt to the Halos for outfielder Kenny Landro, pitcher Paul Hartzell, Brad Havens, and utility player Dave Engel. And probably... Probably one of the best trades in the Cherubs' history. For the best pure hitter in the game in that era. Almost overnight, the California Angels were the hottest ticket in town as the team's ticket department took in $45,850 in season ticket packages within hours after the deal was announced. And they projected an additional $30,000 would have been raked in if they had offered single game tickets. The beleaguered Angels fan base was energized by the trade, and they were not disappointed. With the smashing of the reserve clause, and with free agency in its infancy changing the game forever, the Angels had built a formidable team, mostly acquiring talent on the market. Guys like uh, Joe Rudy, Brian Downing, Don Baylor, Bobby Grinch. The 1979 regular season was a smashing success. As the Chairs finally broke the three-season stranglehold on the AL West Pennant Crown champions, Kansas City Royals. Unfortunately for the Halos, they were matched up against Rod's old postseason nemesis, the Baltimore Orioles, who won the East in the ALCS, and nothing changed but the year on the calendar, baby, as the Orioles, for the third time, beat the team that Carew played for. Three games to one to advance to the World Series. The, uh, the relocation to the left coast, it did not hinder or diminish Rod's ability to hit a baseball. From 1979 to 1983, he posted batting averages over 300. And unlike his tenure in Minnesota, Carew had protection around him in the lineup with the Angels. And he would lead them back to the ALCS in 1984, but they would fall in five games to Harvey Wallbangers. Brewers team of Yount, Molitor, Sutton, and company. Another story I'm covered here at BKP. And my, you know, almost a hundred, I mean, over a hundred shows. Yeah, I'm over now, baby. On August 4th, 1985, he singles off of Frank Viola to notch his 3,000th career hit. And he's very proud of this distinction. He remembers his first baseball coach in the Bronx who cut him and telling young Rodney uh, he had better players than him in front of him on the team. And to this day, he's still befuddled by that cut. After all, Rod always knew he could do two things really well. Even as a kid, he could run fast and he could hit line drives that find holes. 
and he's always had confidence in the batter's box, but even he never imagined he would reach the 3,000-hit benchmark. But he also acknowledges, meh, I've been around for 19 years, and if you stay around long enough, good things are bound to happen for you. And with that single off of Viola, Carew becomes the 16th player in baseball history to reach the 3,000-hit plateau. The pitch. Swing and a line drive, base hit, there it is, number 3,000 for Rod Carew, downing top to third, and the game will be halted right here as a huge crowd in Anaheim, a standing salute to Rod Carew, number 16, and here come the Angels out of the dugout. They're going to go out and share this moment with Carew, Boone, the first man there, Desimbre Beniquez. Ethan Dean Mock hugging Rod Carew. A wonderful emotional moment here at Anaheim Stadium. Mock is going to take the base. Dean Mock came out, he took first base and gave it to Carew. And that would be pretty much his last hurrah. In 1986, the CBA had instituted a new rule that reduced the Major League rosters down to 24 players. And in a somewhat shocking development for the first time in his baseball career, Rod Carew was on the outside looking in. When no offers came his way, not even with a reduced salary attached to it, Rodney Klein Carew retired. He was inducted in the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1991, becoming the 27th player in the history of the game to be enshrined in his first year of eligibility. He was the first player from Panama to receive the call in the hall. And he has since been joined by fellow countryman Mariana Rivera. And when I think of Carell and what he meant to me as a young, impressionable baseball fan, I remember how Carell was in my very first trio of favorite baseball players as a kid. I loved Kenny Singleton because of his raw switch-hitting power and his propensity to walk over 100 times a year. I was fascinated by that as a kid. I loved Pete Rose because of his determination and his will to outwork and out-hustle everyone. And I loved Carew. Carew was graceful. He was elegant. Well, as elegant as any King Cobra is when he's called up and ready to strike his opponent. With his uh, weight on his back leg and a crouch and his bat as an extension of his shoulders while he held the lumbar parallel to the field. I mean, that batting stance was a thing of beauty. What kid my age didn't try it at least a couple of times, right? He had a somewhat icy relationship with the media, which gave him the optics of an aloof diva sometimes. And ordinarily... I would just give you a player's career and move on to our next topic, but the truth is, Carew's life after baseball is nothing short of a fucking miracle, and it has forever changed the life journey for this Hall of Famer. It's been a life of sorrow, loss, the depths of despair, the rise from the ashes, tragedy, purpose, and triumph. So I tell you what, let me take a break right here because you're not going to want to miss the rest of this Carew bio. I'm thinking, let me get the notes together, figure out my projected course for this amazing after baseball life. That's right. Can't we roll a little bit hot tonight? 
and embellishing the world with the heat coming out. Reach out, but it's my He's the C-Mac. BRB, you freaks. See you on the other side of the break. Major League Baseball presents Big League Tips. Well, I think the, the most important thing about hitting is find a bat that you can use, something that you can swing. Uh, you don't want to find a bat that's too big, but when you swing it, you might fall. You know, find something that's comfortable in your hands, walk up to home plate, and if the pitch is around home plate, take your wax, because uh, that's going to show that you, you want to hit, and that's where you're going to start learning to be, to be an aggressive. The preceding message was brought to you on behalf of Major League Baseball. Howdy, y'all. It's the Pod Squad, Gage Gein, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Laparose Hand Cream, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors, as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crabs and delicious crawfish boils. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand cream. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy foods or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fishing hand cleaner get rid of bait funk, the fish hand cleaner, wing hand cleaner, removes the spicy bugs around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September, Laparose Hand Cleaner is offering all BKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal, hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap, seafood hand cleaners. Buy one, get one. We only advertise products on Backwards K Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there's nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, please use the code SUMMER23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelly, spicy hands. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to BKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey mom, where are my poles at? I'm gone fishing. pitch out and it did not bother Jack Morris, which is to me a real tribute to a good pitcher.
Sutton Tigers three and Angels two. The irony of that home run, during batting practice, Carew was having a tough time as we watched his swing, and Gene Mock said, kind of an aside, he said he hasn't hit the ball on the fat part of the bat since his 3,000 hits. Mm. That baby was hit in the sweet spot. It has brought the Angels right back into the game, and we're just starting. Now you have Downing, Jones, and Jackson, and Downing is... season in baseball and along this journey we have found out that he was born on a segregated train in Gatun, Panama. He and his brother and mother they endured daily physical and mental abuse at the hands of the father Eric until they are able to flee from him to New York City. He brings his love for baseball with him to New York but the first two years of his life in America he focuses his he focuses on learning how to speak English rather than playing games with children. Plus, the local baseball coach basically told him he sucked. After two years, he masters English, and he begins playing ball with the other Spanish kids in the Bronx. But he, he ain't like the other kids. He can run, he can field, and holy shit can that kid hit. Eventually, a scout for the Twins see him. They snatch him out of the burrow, they sign him up to a pro contract, and he goes on to become one of the game's greatest pure hitters in the history of baseball. And after his retirement, he operated and owned a hitting school near his home in Peralta Hills in Anaheim. He can be found living out his life tutoring MLB players like Garrett Anderson and Tim Salmon, as well as amateurs with his trademark patience and steadfast nuggets of baseball wisdom. In 1992, the Angels, at the behest of manager Buck Rogers, uh, Rod becomes the team hitting coach. That turned out to be a nine-year gig, and that was followed by two more years with the Brewers in the same capacity. Unfortunately, the comfort and charmed life would become fleeting when his 18-year-old daughter was stricken with leukemia in 1995. It was imperative that a bone marrow donor was needed in order for his little girl to have a chance against this debilitating disease. Her two older sisters were a match for one another, but not for Michelle. And Carew, a quiet and private person, like I explained, he, he had a cold relationship with the media. I wouldn't call it confrontational. I would just term it as an indifferent relationship. 
between he and the press. Now, he finds himself in a situation where he need, he needs to use the press to find a donor. And he had worries of making a spectacle of his daughter's health in public. He had always kept his children and family life separate from baseball. He asked his daughter what she thought about it. She said if it helps other kids, then she's all for it. And the Carew unit, they sat down as a family and discussed their options before Rod went public. Unfortunately, finding a donor in time for Michelle, uh, it failed. After a seven-month battle, she succumbed to leukemia on April 17, 1996. And there was some measure of good that came from her death. After Rod made his plea to the nation while his brave daughter fought the good fight, he was overwhelmed by the increase in bone marrow donorship, specifically from the African American and other minority communities where the reserve numbers were frighteningly low. As he wiped away his tears in the ensuing press conference, he took solace in that fact that Because of his daughter's valiant but fruitless fight against leukemia, his little girl was saving lives because of the increase in marrow transplants due to their public appeals. As Michelle lied dying on the gurney in front of him, he told his little girl, we are all here, we all love you, and we hope you have a safe journey. And due to Rod's public awareness campaign, More than 70,000 calls to the Marrow program were generated, many of them from ethnic minorities. Because of Michelle's rare genetic composition with her father being a black West Indian and a Panamanian heritage and her mother is a white Russian Jewish descent, it was difficult to find a suitable genetic donor. And if you listened to the pod, about the history of the Big A, Angel Stadium. You may remember, I told you, they have a statue in her honor at that ball field. Unfortunately, the grief of losing his younger daughter, his youngest daughter, Michelle, it, it created a strain on the family, and ultimately, it broke Rod's marriage. After 26 years of matrimony, he and his wife divorced. In 2000, he meets Rhonda Jones. And the two marry in December of 2001. They have two sons together, Cheyenne and Devin. And they are devout Christians in the neighborhood church. On January 19, 2004, Panama City's National Stadium was renamed Rod Carew Stadium. And in 2005, Carew was named the second baseman on the MLB All-Time Latino Legends baseball team. On September 20th, 2015, 11 days before his 70th birthday, a little over eight years ago today, Rod is playing a round of golf alone at Cresta Verde Golf Course in Corona, California. He hits his first tee shot off hole one. It's true, precise, like his, you know, over 3,000 Major League Baseball hits right down the fucking middle. He places his club in the bag on the cart. And all of a sudden... Carew starts to feel dizzy. His hands become clammy and his chest begins to burn. Thankfully, he was still on hole one and he was in close proximity to the clubhouse. Had he been just one hole further away, he would have surely died in a real butterfly effect moment. 
He manages to stumble into the clubhouse. He informs employees to call an ambulance, and he lies on the floor. He begins to go into severe cardiac arrest. And the last thing he remembers is a paramedic hovering over him with paddles, yelling, we're losing him, we can't lose him. And then he blacks out. His next memory was him waking up in Riverside Community Hospital, where it's more guys with paddles and more shouts of, don't lose him. He was worn out, and he closed his eyes, not sure if he would ever open them again. His heart had stopped beating completely on two separate occasions as Carew had suffered a massive heart attack that the doctors call the Widowmaker. Jesus Christ. He's a living miracle. He had survived the initial ordeal, but Carew's body was slowly and painfully defying him. And like his daughter, nine years before, it was now Rod's turn to need a heart and kidney transplant. And folks... Let's stick a pin in that momentarily with the image in your psyche of how this magnificent ball player and gentleman is literally at the end of his mortal court. If a heart and kidney is not bounded. I feel like I need to do a swerve here and speak to you about the other moving chains in the story that would eventually link up with Carew's timeline and destiny. In the 1990s, a real-life hero unbeknownst to anyone at the time, is living out his childhood in Mission Viejo, California. His name was Conrad Rowland. Now, for some of you leatherheads out there, his name may sound familiar. He played tight end for Notre Dame, later attended Stanford. He had a five-year NFL career, played for the 49ers, Jets, Colts, and Ravens. When he was 11 years old, he met not only his favorite baseball player, Rod Carew, but his favorite athlete, period. Little did either of the two know that 18 years later, they would be connected forever. The day he met Carew, all he did on his car ride home was tell his mom about meeting his hero and about how one day he was going to be a pro athlete just like Rodney. And his mom will tell you that That moment resonated inside of Conrad and left an impression on him that set him on his course to becoming a pro athlete. In 2012, he played all 16 games for the Jets, hauling in 11 catches for 86 yards. His career seemed ready to blossom, but a significant knee injury in 2013 dashed his NFL hopes. By the spring of 2016, Rowland is back home in California. He was taking business courses and was considering a life in real estate while he contemplated life after football. And one day he is sitting at the dining room table with his mother, Mary, and he's filling out a driver's license renewal form. And he asks his mother, Hey, Ma, do you think I should be an organ donor? And she remembers saying, that's totally up to you, son. So he asks her a follow-up question. Are you one? And she tells him, yes, I am. I have always been one. And Conrad says, yeah, what the hell? I'll do it. And Conrad at this time is still trying to figure it out. He's going to school. 
but he's also at the local gym going ham in case any NFL opportunities present themselves. And two days after Thanksgiving 2016, he calls home complaining of a headache behind his right eye. And his mother tells him to go to the hospital, get it checked out, and she'll meet him there. Within minutes of his arrival, he is diagnosed as having an aneurysm. The doctors were honest with him, telling him it's a bad one and it's in a bad place. He's then transferred to UCLA Medical Center and his mother stayed by his side. The second day, she goes to the cafeteria to find some coffee to ease Conrad's persistent headache. And while in line, she texts her son's words of encouragement and says she'll be back upstairs soon. And he texts back, I'm about to kick this thing's butt. God has something big in store for me. Shortly after replying to Mary's text, he told a nurse that his headache had suddenly become worse. And within minutes after complaining, Conrad's aneurysm burst. The doctors performed 17 hours of surgery, trying in vain to save his life, but to no avail. On December 12, 2016, Conrad Rowland was declared brain dead at the age of 29. And as the horrific drama is playing out in front of Rowland's friends and family, another more hopeful script is playing out behind the scenes. The doctors are keeping Conrad on life support. And a call goes out to recipients at the top of the organ transplant list. Okay, now, going back to Carew and his current trials and tribulations of life or death consequences. Rod and his wife Rhonda were in the car, and they had been returning from a doctor's appointment in San Diego when Rhonda's phone rings. He's looking at his wife from the passenger seat as tears start to flow from her eyes. Rhonda hangs up the phone and she is literally shaking and crying. They found a heart and kidney, Rod. We gotta go. We have so much to do. They needed to text and call their inner circle appraise them of the situation. And Rhonda remembers receiving texts back from friends asking her if they thought the donor was Conrad Rulin. And neither Rod nor his wife understood why they were asking that question. The Carews knew of Conrad. Their family lived nearby. They knew he was a pro athlete. But the husband and the wife had been so focused on Rod's health that they hadn't heard the tragic story of Conrad yet. And they really didn't give the question much thought initially. Thankfully, Rod's heart and liver transplants were a success. But he and Rhonda still wondered from where the organs came. Mary Rulin wanted to know as well where her son's organs had gone. She had a maternal and primal need to meet the recipient. Representatives of the Organ Donation Network told her the proper protocol was that she would have to wait at least a year before that would be possible. Which was fine by her, but whoever got Conrad's heart better deserve it because it's a good one. Conrad's funeral was held on December 23rd, 2016. Two days before Christmas. That poor family. Well, 
People keep approaching Mary at the funeral, and they keep asking her if she thinks it's possible that Rod Carew was the recipient of her son's organs. Mary Rulin, like the Carews, had been so wrapped up in her own nightmare bubble that she was removed from Rod's place. She didn't, she didn't know what these people were talking about. So the day after the funeral, Mary begins surfing the net, and she begins reading about Rod and Rhonda's personal hell, and the incredible story of how the Hall of Fame baseball player had a second chance at life with his transplants. And when she got to the end of the story, she read the words, Heart of 29. The Heart of 29 is Rod and Rhonda's campaign to raise awareness about heart disease prevention. Number 29 was Carew's uniform number, and Conrad was 29 years old when he died. So, Mary begins calculating the timelines of events for the Carews and connecting the dots to Conrad. And she deduces that this cannot be a coincidence. Meanwhile, Rod's curiosity has him doing his own research, and he finds out that he and Conrad had the same blood type. Rhonda and Rod were convinced that Conrad was the donor. Meanwhile, Mary got Rhonda's number through a mutual friend, and against the advice of the donation agency, she called her. Mary was so nervous and startled to hear Rhonda on the other line, that she just blurts it out. Hello, I'm Mary Rowland, and I think your husband has my son's heart and left kidney. And the two were in tears, talking about the blood types and all the amazing factors that would suggest a match. But they still wanted confirmation. So, Mary calls the donor company and says, look, it's all over the internet, and I, I, I need to know, did my son's heart and kidney Go to Rod Carell. And after some hesitation, the lady on the other line capitulated and said yes. Yes, they did. The two families decided to meet in March of 2017. As soon as Mary saw Rod, she ran to him, hugged him, put her head on the ball player's chest to hear the thump of his heart. While Conrad was in the hospital, Mary laid her head on her son's chest for hours and just listened to the timpani drum in his chest. She knew the sound of that parari, like the back of her hand. And with Rod fighting the urge to break down in tears, Mary looked up at the Hall of Famer and said, whoa, that's my boy in there. And Carew looks at Mary and he says, now we are one. We are brothers. And we are going to do great things together. By spreading the word about donorship, getting people to listen to us, and hopefully saving lives, just like his younger daughter did. We call ourselves the Carulans now. We have pictures of Comrade in our family album. We spend a lot of time together, and because of our close proximity to each other, they are welcome to come over and listen to Conrad's heart anytime, says Rhonda Carill. Rod is grateful for a second chance of life. And he has devoted his remaining days on this planet trying to help others. Whether it's through his tireless efforts to promote bone marrow donations to minorities or his Heart of 29 Foundation and his fight against heart disease. But 
That's always been his nature. Kirill has won numerous awards, as we're about to hit on. But the only award on public display in his home is his 1977 Roberto Clemente Award that exemplifies the game on and off the field, as well as work in the community. When the Twins brought Carew to the shell, the team had projections of him being a 240-hitting second baseman. But Carew always knew he was more than that. Indeed, Mr. Carew, you brought so much more than that to the table. And it has been an honor to tell your story this week. Not only were you one of the greatest pure hitters in the history of the game, but your humanitarian efforts set you on a pedestal above. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to twist this joint up this week. I want to thank all of you and the audience for listening. And I promise, freaks, I'll try to be better next week. Before I kick rocks and get the stepping, how about we take a look at those, oh, so lovely, Rod Carew's stats. Okay. Rodney Klein Carew. 19-year Hall of Fame baseball career with the Minnesota Twins and California Angels. Born October 1st, 1945 in Gatun, Panama. So two days prior to the drop of this show, Rod celebrated his 78th birthday. Happy birthday, Rod Carew. He was a 12,546 player to make the major leagues when he made his MLB debut on April 11th, 1967 when he goes 2 for 4 versus the Baltimore Orioles. 81.2 war, 10,550 plate appearances, 1,424 runs scored, the 87th most in baseball history, 3,053 hits, the 27th most in the game's history. And he is sandwiched between Ricky Henderson at 26 and Lou Brock at 28. 445 doubles, 11, 113th most in history, 112 triples, 92 home runs, 1,015 1, RBI, 357 stolen bases, 187 times caught, 1,018 walks to 1,028 strikeouts. 3,998 total bases, which is the 92nd most in baseball history, which that ain't too shabby considering he only hit 92 career home runs, and he's wedged between two immortals in Carlton Fisk at 91 and Ichiro Suzuki at 93. His 2,404 singles are the ninth most in the game's history. An incredible slash line of 328, 393, 429, an OPS of 822, and a 131 OPS plus. That 328 career batting average is the 40th best in the history of the game. 18-time All-Star, 1967 AL Rookie of the Year, 1977 AL MVP, 7-time batting champion, 1977 Roberto Clemente Award winner, 5-time AL Player of the Month, 5-time AL Player of the Week, 3 seasons at number 1 in war, 1974, 1977, and 1979, 7 Silver Slugger Awards, and 1991, his first year of eligibility, Rod Carew received 90.5% of the vote by the BBWA to earn his enshrinement in the Pantheon of Immortals at the National Baseball Hall of Fame 
in Cooperstown, New York. Both the Twins and the Angels have retired as number 29 for posterity. Gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages. This is the story of Rod Carell. And man, oh man, I tell you, just an amazing story of triumph and loss, as well as resurrection and purpose. It has the elements of a great story. And I'm so proud to have this amazing ball player and a human being in my collection of ball players and their stories. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. You got something you want to say to me? Good, bad, indifferent? I ain't hard to find, kid. Holla at your boy. The show email is backwardskpod at gmail.com. On the site formerly known as Twitter, we are back underscore K underscore podcast. The YouTube channel is Backwards K Pod. Please subscribe. And you can always find me chilling with my OGs in the best baseball Facebook private group page around the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. If you are planning a trip to the Denver, Colorado area or you live near there, go check out my dudes, Danny and Bruce, at the National Ball Park Museum on Blake Street. Just a long fly ball from Coors Field. They have an amazing collection of baseball stadium paraphernalia from the past and the present. It has uh, some really amazing exhibits in there. You, you won't be sorry you ran through. They're friends of the show, and while you walk through this time portal, you might just hear BKP playing over those speakers as uh, they are both loyal fans of this show. Uh, we're going to be getting together sometime this month, hopefully, to do an interview and talk about some of those uh, baseball gold exhibits that are the, those two are sitting on. And that's at the National Ballpark Museum in Denver, Colorado, out on Blake Street. So, how about... We load up this BKP time travel choo-choo. Get you freaks back to Terrapin Station where your loved ones are surely waiting. And as we pull off from this week's journey, I can see the Rod Carew bio getting smaller and smaller. I now turn my attention over to our never-say-die baseball hydra, and I chop. The head of that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place next week. Oh boy. Next week, we're going to talk about the day a team of Ku Klux Klansmen took on a group of Negro League barnstorming all star team back in 1925 in Wichita, Kansas. Just a crazy, crazy friggin' story. But look, y'all already know. That's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod where we collect ball players and their stories. I will never charge you seamheads for the baseball content. Never going to do it. Never going to happen. And I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. Thanks, bro.
You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like my dude Brooks Robinson. I love you, Brooksy. Tom will not dim the glory of your deeds, brother. Your legacy will live on for a thousand years in the charm, baby. So, look, I think I've accomplished the goals I set up for this show. I'm trying to remember if I forgot something. I hate when that red light goes off and I'm like, shit, I forgot this. But I think I got it all in. What an amazing story this week. I actually cried at points putting this together. So, I'm very proud to have Kirill. Okay, I'm a jet. I know you guys are probably getting sick of hearing my voice. Vinny, Vinny, but see, I came, I saw, I conquered. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch watching TV... Or with their nose and their phones looking unproductive AF. By all means, take those little monkeys outside. Play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless. And win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me last year in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Straight to the depths, you southpaw demon seed. Thanks for hanging in there with me this week, freaks. I love you. See you next week, Seamheads. Peace.